Each week, the Bible as Literature podcast brings you in-depth discussion of the biblical text in a format short enough for your morning commute, but long enough to be substantive, posing difficult questions meant to keep you engaged. If you value this work, please consider donating as little as 25 cents per episode. That's just $1 per month. To learn more, please visit patreon.com forward slash Bible. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash Bible. Thank you. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos with the Bible as Literature podcast. Let me share a few quotes with you. Nothing is more fallacious than wealth. It is a hostile comrade, a domestic enemy. Our money belongs to God no matter how we have gathered it. The love of money leaves everything corrupted and in ruin. The love of money is a dreadful thing. It disables both eyes and ears and makes men worse to deal with than a wild beast, causing a person to consider neither conscience, nor friendship, nor fellowship, nor salvation. How long shall we love riches? For I shall not cease exclaiming against them, for they are the cause of all evils. Do not leave money to your children. Instead, bequeath wisdom and knowledge. For if they are taught to expect money, they will disregard everything else, and their abundant wealth will provide a way to mask their wickedness. A rich man is not someone who possesses much, but who gives much. This is true wealth, not to have riches, but to not want riches. Teach children to love true wisdom, and they will possess wealth and glory such that money cannot provide. If a child learns a trade or is highly educated for a lucrative profession, it is nothing compared to the art of detachment from money. If you want to make your child wealthy, teach him that the one who is truly rich does not desire great possessions or surround himself with wealth. These words, a small sample taken from thousands of exegetical quotes by Saint John Chrysostom, proclaim the teaching of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of Mark. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Richard and I discuss the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verses 23 to 31. You're listening to the Bible as literature. Hi, this is Father Mark Bulos. And this is Dr. Richard Benton. And you are listening to episode 180 of the Bible as Literature podcast. We have come to the pericope that we love on this podcast. We've talked about the camel and the eye of the needle at least three times, but this story never gets old. It's a refrain that always sounds good to my ears. Yes, so I want to begin with a plug for St. George Antiochian Orthodox Church. They're having their Middle Eastern Festival on July 14th and 15th. So if you live in the Twin Cities, you need to go to the festival and look at the camels. And then I want you to look at the eye of a needle. And before you tell me, oh, no, no, Father Mark, don't you understand the eye of a needle is a door in the wall of the city, blah, blah, blah. I want you to go look at a door that we will 
generously estimate is four by four, and then look at the camel. And tell me, can a camel go through the eye of a needle? Jesus' point is he took the biggest animal that he knew and the smallest hole that he knew. Whether it's the smallest hole or the smallest door, it was still the smallest versus the biggest. It just doesn't go. And that's Jesus' point. It just won't go. This is very difficult for people to accept because you don't want the threat of the teaching of the Bible against the wealthy. You don't want to submit to that threat. We just came off the story of this wealthy man who labors under the false impression that he owns property. When we know that everything, both the land and everything in it, belongs to the Lord. The problem was not that he had money, but that he wasn't willing to trust God and give up that money as if it belonged to God, in fact, instead of himself. When people talk about the eye of the needle being a door, they say the camel has to get rid of all of its packs and all of its things that it's carrying in order to fit through that door. So what it means is you have to lay aside all of your wealth. That's not the problem because Jesus had the same problem with his disciples. His disciples did give up everything, as we'll find out. They still were not able to fit through the eye of the needle, so to speak. The disciples had the problem of not hearing the teaching. They gave up everything. But there was one thing they wouldn't give up, and that's their ego. They wanted to say something. They wanted to have their say. They wanted their opinions. They wanted to trust in their own ability to understand Jesus, even though Jesus would time and time again show them that they didn't understand. And they wanted to make their point with Jesus. The man who asked Jesus how to have eternal life, he wanted those boxes that he could tick off. And the disciples wanted those boxes that they could tick off. So your camel has to shed all the things that it does for it to act like a camel for it to fit through the eye of the needle. And that's why it's impossible for human beings is because human beings have to give up their earthly cares and their thought that they can take care of themselves. That's what they have to give up. The problem is the lie of ownership. I cannot stress this enough. It is the lie of ownership. Once you believe that you possess something, you can't but make yourself an enemy of God. This is the point of the rich man. Because he had possessions, because he owned property, without even intending to, the intention is irrelevant. Let's say his intention was to follow the Torah. It doesn't matter. Because once he was a man of possession, he set himself against the throne of God. And a Roman citizen would understand this. A Jew in late antiquity would understand this. Because Caesar owns the land. And if you're in Palestine, Herod owns your land. And even if you are a person of nobility, you are a patron of the top noble. That's how it functions. And if you are scriptural, there's only one king, and there are no nobility. And everyone pertains to the one king. This is why Hosea gets angry about the people's sacrifices. God says he does not want sacrifices. Why is this? Because here's the human being. The human being has something. God provides them something. And they think, oh, out of the goodness of my heart, I'm going to offer that to God. 
There's no offering to God. You can't offer something to God that he already possesses. And that's what God keeps repeating, not just in Hosea, but elsewhere, that he already owns everything, so what are you granting him? This is the problem, is that people think they're doing a favor. Oh, if I increase my giving from 5% to 10% to the church, I'm being generous. No, you're being logical. It's as the Muslim shopkeeper said in last week's episode, Al-Murkulillah, everything is the property of God. God is the possessor. It's so important. If you possess something, you can't be a subject of God. It's an impossibility. Theologians like to psychoanalyze the text and rationalize and spiritualize and figure out how you can go on your journey. It's all baloney. Either you love God in the Gospel of Matthew or you love money. You have to choose. It's a big thing. And money, mammon, by money I mean possession. And this is how the wealthy function. They gather wealth in order to be able to boss people around. And that's why our society is collapsing. Because even the poor in this society go to the restaurant and complain about the service. Are you kidding me? People have their heads screwed on backwards, as my father used to say. God is the possessor, the owner. He is the proprietor. He is the king. And this is why the rich cannot enter his kingdom. It's why in Mark, the only one who can function correctly before God is a child who is powerless and has no possession. And we rationalize it, Richard, because all of us own property. And it can't be that all of us are condemned, Father Mark. You can't grow a parish. You can't build a church property. You can't thrive as a community if right out of the gate everyone is condemned. Well, my dear friend, as my colleague Richard Benson says, read Hosea. And Jesus, looking around, said to his disciples, how hard it will be for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus answered again and said to them, children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God. He simply repeated himself. At first, Jesus said, the wealthy can't enter the kingdom. And the disciples said, wait, wait, how's it? And he said, oh, I'm sorry, this isn't about wealthy. It's hard to enter the kingdom of God, period. And it's interesting, based on what you were saying before, Father, he calls them children. Absolutely. Because he's reemphasizing this point that they do not have power, they do not own anything. By calling them children, he's saying, you do not have power, you do not have wealth, you do not have possessions, you have nothing. It's still difficult for you to enter the kingdom of God. The difficulty of entering the kingdom of God is what's central. It's not wealth that's the center, although wealth is the proof that for you, it's impossible to enter the kingdom of God. I need to clarify this statement that children are powerless and possessionless because in this country, people allow their children to refer to their parents' property as theirs. For example, your mother owns a car and you say, my car. Your father buys a house and you live in that house and you say, my house. This is scripturally incorrect. And it's an important point because you cannot understand Galatians unless you understand why you cannot refer to the possession of your father or your mother as yours. And all of the American parents listening are going to say, oh, everything I have belongs to my children. Well, keep talking that way and see how your kids turn out. And if you don't believe me, just take a look at what's happening in this country. It's a question of grace and humility 
and salvation, this question of ownership. When the child understands that everything belongs to the parent, then the child understands the meaning of grace. You can enjoy the car, you can enjoy the house, you can enjoy the generosity of your parents, but it does not belong to you. This makes Americans very uncomfortable because if they think of their children not having things, they feel vulnerable. It affects them emotionally, but they're not being honest with themselves. This is what I'm trying to say. Not only is it good for the children to understand that they don't possess anything. But should you die, even if you have money for your children, if they're not of age, they have nothing. Technically, mathematically, empirically, children are powerless. Forget this nonsense about innocence. We've said this several times. Children are not innocent, but they are powerless, and this is why they are functional in the Gospel of Mark and why the rich man has a problem. If children were innocent, they would not whine, but because they are powerless, they whine. This is how we need to understand children, and the disciples whine. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. In other words, friends, in plain Arabic, the rich shall not enter the kingdom. Now, I know this is a problem for you. I know now when you sit down to do your discussions and your board meetings, you're going to have a crisis because you want the rich families to donate. Well, unfortunately, the Gospel of Mark is not a treatise on how to effectively run a parish organization. They were even more astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? Now, what they really mean is, then how can we function as human beings if the point isn't to attain wealth. They're asking who can be saved because they don't want to give up their wealth. If you're willing to give up your wealth, this is not a problem for you. If you have an issue giving things up, it's a big problem. And so then you're going to petition the king. That's not fair. Who then can be saved? Can I just say that actually Jesus did answer this question. He took a child and put the child in their midst and said, unless you become like this, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. He went through this. The disciples forgot. The disciples can't put two and two together. Jesus said, become powerless, become destitute. So why are they amazed twice? They've been amazed twice in four verses. They should not be amazed if they were paying attention to what Jesus was teaching before. And this is the problem with the human being, is that we hear Jesus and we don't hear Jesus. Jesus teaches, we nod our head, and then we go and do what we were doing before he taught. It goes in one ear and out the other, as we say in English. Children, he called them. Why can they not put two and two together? I don't know why, but we know it's the case, because with the loaves, they didn't put two and two together. He had to talk about the children twice. And now we've proven they still didn't put two and two together. They just don't get it. Looking at them, Jesus said, with people, it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. And here, I ask you to forget the silly philosophy class you took in college. This is not about logical possibilities and logical impossibilities. It is about Paul's statement in Galatians. I do not have confidence in you. 
I have confidence in the seed which I sowed in you. And Mark is about the seed. Because if Jesus thought it were impossible, he would not have been preaching all of these chapters. That's the point. So despite your belief in yourself, despite your glorying in your own possessions, which are vanity because everything belongs to the Lord, despite all of this stubbornness, O Israel, I still have faith that the word of the Father can overcome this evil that is at work in you. It's the question of the leaven. Jesus is agitating the wealthy with this teaching in the hope that this agitation would make the bread of the gospel rise. Peter began to say to him, Behold, we have left everything for you and followed you. It's true. Richard, you've pointed out many times at the beginning of the gospel of Mark, the disciples did drop everything and follow Jesus, but that's not enough. They're not getting the teaching. Peter wants to know, what do I need to do? He wants to force Jesus to say, oh, Peter, but, but you're fine. You're good, Peter. Don't worry about it. Just like the rich man wanted Jesus to say, don't worry, man, you're good. You got it. Why would Jesus have any faith that Peter could continue this teaching forward when he hasn't understood anything? Peter and the rich man have been wasting time reading Plato, in which you talk about good citizens. This is a direct frontal assault on Hellenism when Christ says in the previous verses, no one is good. Because the fruit of Hellenistic philosophy is to attain goodness, to become good. But this is anti-scriptural. You don't become anything. You pass away. That's why the cross stands between you and the resurrection. It's a very serious matter. In other words, Richard, the question of the rich man echoed by Peter's question is, once again, a denial of the crucifixion. They want to grow and achieve and build and become when Jesus himself is going to become weak and humiliated and submit even unto death. It's a completely different path from the path of achievement and attainment. And this is where the gospel of grace comes into full power in Galatians and by extension Romans and other letters in the Pauline corpus. Jesus said, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or farms for my sake and for the gospel's sake, but that he will receive a hundred times as much now in the present age, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and farms, along with persecutions and in the age to come, eternal life. Yeah, I didn't like how he ended that, I have to say. I mean, he said, oh, you left all these things for me and for the gospel's sake, you can get all these things back. Oh, and persecutions. I like how Jesus added that to what you get. Oh, yeah, you're going to get all that with persecution. I like how you said a moment ago, Father, you don't get to the resurrection without going through the cross. You don't get eternal life without going through the crucifixion. And this is the point that Jesus tried to teach the rich man and that Jesus has been trying to teach these disciples the entire time is that you have to accept the persecution, not because... Once you get the lashes on your back, now you can brag to all your friends that you got lashed on the back. No. It's because you have to submit as a child to having no ego, having no power, having no wealth, having no say. All you have is what your father gave you, and that's it. 
Jesus is exegeting Job. As we've said many times, Jesus does not bring a new teaching. He simply regurgitates the old teaching, which is the teaching. Even the mighty Job was not righteous. He was self-righteous. It's so important. People read Job and they make out of him a victim when in fact the object of ridicule in the story of Job is God. Because you trust God and you are loyal to him or you're not. But once you make out of yourself a victim, you become self-righteous. So you hear Job and you think it was a happy ending. But Christ is telling you with all due respect, Job still hasn't passed the test. My father added everything back to him. You think that's the end of the story? It's a second chance. It's God who makes creation beautiful in Job. It's God who holds life in the palm of his hand. What does Job achieve by his loyalty or disloyalty? Nothing. This is it. If you haven't read Ecclesiastes, you can't understand scripture. Nothing changes under the sun. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. In other words, is it good news that Job got all his stuff back in the end? Job probably would have preferred that the whole thing didn't happen, that God recognized his righteousness, gave him eternal life, and he could just get there by a shortcut. But there is no way for him to have to confront the reality of what he was doing, because what he was doing before was manipulating God by being righteous, by sacrificing, by doing the right thing, he was trying to secure his own spot at the table. When that can't be what happens, it cannot work that way. And this is the whole function of Satan. Because Satan functions to say, God, I don't think this guy is as faithful as you think. Well, he's the most faithful guy I've got. Yeah, but I'm betting if you push him, he's going to drop you. Okay, push him, see what happens. He pushed and he dropped him. So when he gets everything restored to him, I mean, you have four children, they're all killed, and you have four more children, you're like, okay, now we're good. I broke even. I don't think people actually think that way. I don't think that, oh, we broke even. He had to go through true suffering, and that suffering was going to be something that he was going to remember till the end of his days, no matter how many children were restored back to him. In other words, as Christ said, along with persecutions, if you are my disciple, that's the deal. That's the deal. And that's not the deal that Job wanted. And his friends tried to convince him that, no, because you must have done some sort of sin. But the friends didn't understand it either. The problem was that Job and the friends thought if they could lead a blameless life, they could have eternal life and everything would be good. Just like the rich man did. Just like Peter did. Oh, if I'm blameless in my life, then God owes me one. This is such a beautiful text, and you cannot understand this text without Paul's letters, which precede the gospel narratives chronologically. Paul's teaching came first. The stories of Jesus came after. And the key here is the resurrection and this concept of first and last in 1 Corinthians. Paul brags that he's the least of all the apostles because of the persecutions he went through. And people don't understand this. People hear Paul talk about being the least, and they hear him as though he's a Midwesterner who's feigning humility. But those of us who are scriptural have no time for the pleasantries of the false vanity 
of acceptable language in Midwestern culture. Paul is not humble. He brags. He brags openly. He brags loudly. He brags at length. To put us to shame. So when Paul says, I am the least, he's saying that I am number one after Jesus Christ. That's why when people come and say, I'm such a sinner, or who am I, and I'm so humble, I don't buy it. It's false humility. The difference between you and Paul is Paul is ruthlessly honest, and you lie to yourself and pretend that you're humble, yet you go home to your possessions. Yet you abuse people every day, perhaps not even understanding how you abuse them because you're not honest with yourself. Well, I know why you're abusing them is because you're avoiding persecutions. You're avoiding pain, you're avoiding difficulty, you're avoiding risks. You gave up everything for your own sake. You didn't give them up for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake. That's the key. The question for the human being is motivated by the salvation of their own neck. So even if you say, I'm asking on behalf of the rich man, who then can be saved? You're lying to yourself. You're asking because you want to save your own neck. Because you want to be able to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, and I have a nice car. But I agree with Pope Francis, clergy should not drive nice cars. Thanks very much, Dr. Ben. Thank you, Father. You've just heard the Bible as literature. Thanks for listening. The Bible as Literature is a production of the Ephesus School Network.